Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a podcast for comedy creators of any stripe. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, especially if this is your first time. No matter who you are, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do. You can on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also leave a review and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod. I love getting feedback, and I've gotten some great feedback so far. So thank you, and continue to give feedback. Today's episode is with Los Angeles actor, writer, director, Brian James O'Connell, who is also an improviser and instructor at the I.O. West out in Los Angeles. He's phenomenal. He was just in South Carolina for the New South Comedy Festival here in Greenville and thrown by Alchemy Improv Comedy. And he did some amazing shows. And I took some really great workshops from him and knew he was the kind of person I'd love to talk to about improv. He is like me when it comes to ideating and thinking about this sort of stuff, but better at it. I am thrilled that he has been able to be was able to be on this podcast and I'm thrilled to share it with you. People like him are who inspired me to start a podcast about picking the brains of greats. It's a pretty free-flowing and informative chat with some good nuggets of knowledge, so strap in and get ready. We pack a lot in. There was a minor technical snafu, though. It was uh, the first one of the podcast. If you notice a change in how he sounds, it's not your headphones. It's not that distracting. You'll still be able to enjoy the episode. Here's my chat with Brian O'Connell. Where did you get your start? Was it at IO West or were you out in Chicago? Uh, no, I actually I got my start in IO West. Um, I actually my entire family's from Chicago, but I was born and raised in North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't even know what long form improv was. Me, improv was just uh, what I saw on television with um, uh, what you call it? Uh, uh, whose line is it anyway? Right. And I thought that was I thought that was. Uh, I thought that was what improv was and that it was only accessible to famous people or to people that had been in some sort of mythical training that wasn't available to me. Cause there was no, there was no improv theaters. There was basically when I was growing up, there's basically no comedy clubs like, uh, at all, like even stand up or, uh, anything like that. Cause I'm from a very small town in North mm-hmm. Carolina. So I, I was <clears throat> living in Los Angeles, and a girl that I dated in college, uh, Rebecca Brown, who is now uh, Rebecca Sinarski, uh, uh she uh, invited me to see her show. She was like, hey, will you come see my improv show? Uh, and I went, yeah, sure. When When is it? She's like, oh, it's Sunday night at 11. And I was like, well, I don't have HBO, so I won't be watching The Sopranos or Six <laughs> Feet Under or anything. So I'm like, yeah, sure. sure. And I went and saw it, and they just happened – remember it. Uh, that was January. January 19th of 2003 and they just happened to have the greatest show they had ever done. Uh, I remember watching going, I want to do this. What is this? 
what's this magical thing? And so like I, uh, after the show, I ran downstairs to the box office. I was like, how do I do this? How do I sign up for classes? I hear that there's a, there's a school here. And they're like, oh, you just missed sign up for classes for like two weeks. But you can call the office the next day. And I did it m- Monday at noon on January 20th. I, uh, I called and said, I want to do this. And they said, classes start March 1st. Uh, and I said, yeah, put, me, put me down. Uh, and so that was March 1st, 2003. I had my first uh, level one class with Paul Valancourt. Uh, and I never looked back. And then over the next year, as I started to do more research and go online and find out things, I found the Improv Resource Center, those message boards, and uh, run by Kevin Mullaney and yesand.com, run by uh, Asaf Ronan. Uh, and then I realized that Chicago was the birthplace, the mecca of improv. And then I got real, real mad at my family. <laughs> For never taking like, you out. Yeah, I was like, you sons of bitches. All those family reunions, all those summer vacations going to Chicago, never once did anyone, none of my cousins were like, hey, you know, Brian likes comedy. Let's take him to a Second City show. I was like, you assholes. <laughs> I could have like, that. when I think back, because uh, my Aunt Kathy, who I love to death and is also my godmother, when I think back that I could have been 16 I got uh, my aunt Kathy in Chicago uh, for six weeks, which she would have loved. Yeah. I could have taken the iOS summer intensive. Uh, you know, Heather Ann Campbell took it when she was, uh, you know, took classes in Chicago when she was 15. When I think when I think of all those people that got that start and got exposed to it in high school, I was like, and think of how I could, how much further along I could be in my training. I'm 10 years behind. For no reason other than just no one in my family in Chicago said, hey, there's this thing. Uh, and, and so I've, there's, I'm not I'm, – I'm mostly joking. Like I'm not right, furious yeah. with it. But there are days where I'm just like, shit. Well, I wish oh, I could have done it. I, I have the same feeling because I've only been doing it for three and a half years. And yeah, I could have been doing – I didn't know about long form the way I – I grew to know about it myself. So it was, I had the, a very similar experience to you is that I was just watching whose lines it anyway. And that was what improv was to me, which is fun to watch, but it didn't ever inspire me to do it. And then, uh, I did take an improv class in college, but that was cause it was an elective for my minor cause I was yeah, a theater <laughs> minor. So it seemed like it would be a fun class to take, but yeah. You know, when it came to long form, it wasn't until, you know, not even 10 years ago when I first saw uh, ASCAT and thought, oh my gosh, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Where did you see ASCAT? Were you visiting? It was on Netflix. I I saw, I just, yeah. The old old Bravo special where they did two. Well, I saw the Bravo special second. That was the one where Tina Fey and Andy Richter sat in with them. The Netflix thing is what their DVD is, which is the one with um, Andy Daly and Horatio Sands are with them. And oh, yeah. When I saw UCB, that was when I wanted to go into long form as well. And I I am surprised to hear that you started in 2003 and that you don't have that extra 10 years that you're saying you missed. Because watching you, you would think, oh, this guy's been <clears throat> performing for 25 years. Well, I made up for it by being a psychopath uh, <laughs> and really having it take over my life because uh, I, I did sort of, I guess part of that was because I knew that I had so much, in my mind, I had catching up to do, uh, mm, but also improv became improv became so important to me because uh, I always say uh, improv saved my life, uh, and that's not hyperbole. That's uh, It was the first thing I ever found that told me it was okay for me to be me. 
mm-hmm. um, and not getting too not getting too deep into it or too dark into it. Not that I mind, but it's just like, eh, I've, I've talked about it on other podcasts. People can go find it. Uh, so I went really into it. Uh, there's an old business uh, axiom that I use all the time. Uh, it's the quality triangle. Fast, mm-hmm. cheap, and good, pick two. Right. Because uh, that's all you're getting. I wanted to be good fast, so I knew it would not be cheap. And I was there at I.O. four to five nights a week watching four to five hours of improv a night. Uh, and just soaking in, soaking in. And then when I met Miles, uh, my mentor, Miles Groff, I met Miles in level five. So October of, yeah, October of 2003. So 13 years ago, when I met the old man and then the first five minutes of his class, I was like, shut up, take my money, whatever you're, whatever you're selling, I'm buying because it just, it just clicked for me. And then, so the stuff that's working with him and the, you know, the sort of philosophies that he had to it, because no one no one thinks more about improv than the old man. Just, I mean, just no one does. That's what he does. He like he teaches it. He runs the theater, but like when he goes home at night and puts his kids to bed and goes out to the back patio and, and has a Bud Light and he'll just stare off into the distance and just constantly be thinking about improv. <clears throat> so that's kind of, kind of what I did. Cause I wanted, I want to be, I want to be good at this. It was so important to me. And so I, uh, I missed a lot of birthday parties. I was going out and I, and I, I still do a lot of that. Like I do, I work on improv every day, every right. day, but I've also pulled back and realized, um, weirdly enough, I got this, this is a, uh, piece of advice that I got from an ice tea song called play, you played yourself back in the old freedom of speech record where he's like, it's this one line where he's talking about other MCs that don't have anything to talk about because they dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, there's only so much you can rap. And he's like, you f- I think the line is like, you flunk science, math and history, you know, like, you know, uh, the idea of like, you know, drop science. Why not? Like, you're going to run out of things to say about cars and money and girls. What do you actually have to say? And that's, and it kind of goes back to another, you know, I, I brought that in with another piece of advice that Miles gave me and everybody. Uh, I think this is the first thing he says on the uh, Delmonic interviews, uh, that old, that documentary. So the idea is the secret to being a better and more interesting improviser is being a better and more interesting person. And you have to you have to live life. You have to go and see things. You have to study art and literature and history and science and be generally inquisitive, not only of uh, you know book learning, but also of people learning, of being uh, generally wanting to know what's going on in other people's lives, being fascinated with what they do, even if they think it's boring. Right? It's yeah. not boring. It's not boring to you because that's new information. You uh, you know. If someone is works in middle management at a pen company, that's boring as shit to them. But it's interesting to me because I am not in middle management at a pen company. Right. I want to know more of that stuff. <clears throat> so I've, I've dialed it back now because you realize that you have to like, you have to have a good meal every once in a while. You have to be empathetic to other people. You have to have kindness and and and, and sympathy and be be out there exposed to stuff because if all you do is go to improv shows and all you do is improv shows all your improv shows will be about improv and that's boring. Right. That's we're we're supposed to be doing stuff about the human condition. And if you're not out there living like a human, I don't know what you're going to talk about. Yeah. And and you're also trying to, if you're an actor or an improviser, you're trying to exhibit the human condition. And if you aren't observing it or experiencing it in real life, then you're Mm going to have a really hard time. That's one of the things that I, learned a long time ago was essentially what you're saying is that you grow as a person through art because it forces you to tear down walls and to actually live uh-huh. life and experience things yeah. with people. 
And if you you yeah. are not going to be as good of an artist if you aren't doing that. And so if you want to be a good artist, you better start tearing down some of those emotional blocks and walls that we put up around ourselves to save us, so yeah. we think, from the outside world. But it's, it's not going to help you in, in any realm, the art realm <clears throat> or the real world. I noticed, yeah. and I'm, I'm wondering your take on this, do you think that in this internet age, when everyone's looking at cell phones or screens, they're looking at screens all day and they're not really interacting with people, have you noticed any difference with how people who come from that world or have gotten a, a really adapted to that, have you noticed any change in how they perform? Uh, <clears throat> not really. I think uh, I think a lot of that stuff is overblown, and mm. I think it's part of mythology. There's a great there's a great photograph I saw not too long ago. Um, it's from like the early 1920s, I believe. It's everyone on the subway on the train, where back when things actually looked like trains. When we think of trains, like old timey trains, mm-hmm. uh, but that's yeah, it's it's just a subway. It was an elevated train. Um, it's everybody on their way to work, and they're all reading the paper. Read the newspaper, right? Yeah, because there was an early edition, there was a there was an early edition, there was a morning edition, there was a late edition, right? Because that's mm-hmm. how news happened and, and newspapers had been. So if you wanted to be interact, uh, interconnected to the world, you had to get that morning paper to find out what the fuck was going on in the world. <laughs> right. So the idea now of people saying like, oh, everyone's looking at their phones. There's another one that just came out where it was a meme that got, had gotten disproved. It was, uh, I think it was a bunch of students, uh, like young people looking at, clearly teenagers, uh, looking at all of them looking at their cell phones while there's like a beautiful, I think like a Van Gogh or something in the background. They're clearly in a museum. And the, uh, the short-sighted uh, meme was like, look at all these young, young kids just don't understand. Look at these millennials. They got this beautiful piece of art behind them and they're all on their phones playing their video games. It's like, and then it got disproved. It was like, eh, actually, no. What it is is that they're uh, they're at a national museum. They had just spent a, a ton of time wa- looking at that uh, looking at that painting and being awestruck by its beauty. And because the museum has such a wonderful interactive uh, <clears throat> interactive uh, app that goes along with the museum, so you could learn more information on that. What they were all doing is that their their teacher had instructed them to sign on to that app and take a test. They were all taking a test to mm-hmm. learn more about the beautiful painting and the artist that had done it. I'm not sure if it was Van Gogh or not. It's, it's, so to me, there's always more of that. So this idea that like young folks, you know, are, are millennials and they whine and they don't have it. It's like, uh, on the one hand, I'm like, eh, I was 19. I was a fucking know-it-all. I thought I, I, I thought my shit didn't stink. That's just called being young. Right. Uh, it's right. just older people not realizing that that was their thing. You have to remember at a certain point, rock and roll, like just Elvis. Elvis is so tame to us now comparatively. But that to what was our so is. controversial. Yeah. Hit the scene. <clears throat> yeah. Right. And then, and at the same time, it's just like, that's, that's the evolution. And anyone that, anyone that longs for those days, don't remember how shitty it was for a lot of people yeah. during those days. So, right. And also, too, like, you know, like, oh, they're entitled, these millennials. I'm like, you know what? They're not entitled. Maybe they're just not going to accept the bullshit that, like, experience that they've been handed to them. Maybe mm-hmm. they're just not going to accept the fact that they have to go to college and then start their lives $80,000 or more in debt. 
right? Maybe that is not, maybe that is not acceptable to them and they're pushing back against it. Uh, it's the same way that everyone bitches about like all these kids, you know what's wrong with these kids? They all got partip- participation trophies when they got out. They've never been hard. I whole thing like, because I hear yeah. people who are my age say that same thing and we got participation trophies them? when we were who kids. Who gave them participation trophies? The adults. Yeah. Blame yourself. They're five. They didn't all get together and on the soccer team be like, all right, so before we start this game, we just agree that we all get participation trophies. No, the adults, their parents gave that to them. Right. Who are the same people bitching about it? Well, yeah. Who fucking gave it to That's them? very true. But then there are people who grew up on participation trophies who are complaining about this young generation growing up on participation trophies. Well, so did exactly. you. You can't say anything yeah. if you did, too. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, it's you the, know, it's, I, I do think some of that the is the lie. It's the hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, to go back to something you were saying about Miles, about how he thinks about mm-hmm. improv all day, I'm someone who I'm. I'm not saying I think about it as much as he does, but I do like to. Oh, no, ideate. no one does. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I do like to ideate though, and I do like to come up with ideas, and I'll I'll try to write notes and and come up with things, mm-hmm. figure out things. Um, very much for the reason that you were bringing up earlier about you were playing catch up. That's me playing catch up. Uh, mm-hmm. But how does someone who thinks about improv all day, transfer that to doing good scene work. Because I, I can have you ideas are. and things like that, but when it comes to actually practicing the skill uh, or, or exhibiting the skill in an improv show, what how do you transfer it? You're already doing it. There is no magical, mythical next step. You're working <laughs> that muscle. It's already affecting your improv positively because you're thinking about it. And you're doing it and you're you're like, whether it's keeping a journal or running exercise by yourself, uh, it's miles. And I have talked about this a lot in like last year or so where it's this, uh, it's the myth of stage time. Like, Oh, I'll get better. If once I get more stage time, it's like, no stage time is part of it, but you're going to think even now I think about improv and write ideas and do exercise like 10 times as much as I'm actually physically on stage. Mm -hmm. Right. That's yeah. So all that just by simply this is practice. You thinking about it right now, ideas that is already going to translate into good scene work. It's just such a slow, gradual process that you can't. Uh, it's like you know, it's like evolution or the tides or erosion right. or you know or stra- you know stratification of, of of rock layers in the in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. It, you're not going to see the immediate results. It's that frog. In the cold pan of water, with the heat slowly turned up. Even though I just uh, I found out a couple of years ago that uh, that doesn't that's not true. <laughs> that's, that's that's not an actual exercise. Like if your frog dives, you'll never feel it. No, he'll feel it. He'll feel it, and he'll hop out of there like wave it because he's an amphibian and water and temperature is kind of his thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, but but, but you're saying that, that the process that is the progress, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just it's just. It's hard. It's like doing a deconstruction, being in the opening scene, and then uh, and then turning around and then doing a, uh, a thematic scene off of your own character. You're too close to it. You're standing too close to the mirror. You can't possibly right. realize that how that stuff is working. So you just already doing that stuff is already working. It's already it's already translated itself into good scene work. It's just so gradual and minuscule. It might just be a second here or half of a line here. It's already working. It's already working. 
Mm-hmm. You're just too close to see it. You know who does see it? People. I guarantee you, you keep doing this stuff three months from now, someone's going to come up to you out of the blue, non sequitur, out of left field, and be like, hey, man, I just want to see, like, you know, lately you've been killing it. Like, I just, you know, I just been watching the shows and like, you seem like really confident up there and you got it and, and it'll be, it'll be stunning to you. Even with me saying it right now, saying that that is going to happen to you, when it happens to you, it's still going to be stunning to you because you're uh, not going to, you, you don't see yourself that way. You just see, you just see the struggle. Right. <laughs> and that also, I guess, relates to taking workshops and mm-hmm. then outside of the workshop, Maybe you don't get to practice what you were practicing in the workshop when you're with your team, but having mm-hmm. taken the workshop and taken notes and looked over those notes is still yep. progress for you. Yeah. Anyone on your team that has taken a workshop somewhere uh, independent of the team and brings it back, that's part of the team now. Yeah. That's part of the team now because it has to, it has to be. You know, like I, I was just having, I was teaching a class right now, and one of my students was like, my team doesn't know any of position player. I'm like, so what – if I do, like, how do I get them to do it? I'm like, because you're doing it. They'll have to. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> they may not know the terminology. They may not know the technique. But just simply by doing it, you, simply by you doing it and then yes-anding it, which it all, no matter what, no matter what improv, it all comes back to yes-and. Right. Uh, they'll do it. They, they may not be aware of it, right? But they're, but they're doing it because you're doing it. Any uh, a t- improv team is a sum of its parts. It's always a sum of its parts, and we we all come together to make that greater Voltron, mm-hmm. to make that thing happen. Warner, I'm a big fan of the band Fish. I used to uh, used to tr- uh, travel around and follow them around and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a great part in their book where they talk about uh, the idea of truly because they do a lot of improvisation. Uh, like truly to them, what is improvising is that. They believe, I remember this distinctly, they believe that if they're playing in front of 10,000 people, right, one person more or less in that audience would completely change the temperature and the, and the, and the, and the climate of the show, that they would absolutely change the, uh, the, the vibe of the show. And, then, and they live it. Like Trey will spend an hour, Trey Anastasio, guitar player, will spend an hour before the show drawing up a set list and he goes, he goes, I do it because it's part of the process on that. He goes, but I know he's like, we've never played a single show that we got past song three of the set list. Mm-hmm. After that, it's, ch- it's checking the temperature of the crowd, what they're into, what they're not into. <clears throat> Is it more of a jazzy sort of night? I mean, and I truly believe that too. So if one person, it doesn't matter where I'm playing, uh, one person, if like at New South, when I was there for uh, the, the festival, doing that, uh, doing that uh, Three Insane Rituals, that one-man show. If there had been one person more or less in the crowd, you would have seen a completely different show. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd, there if are I a had, lot of if people... I hadn't seen you, if I hadn't seen you in the front row when I fucked up and turned off the lights, <laughs> I was like, oh, there's Jason Farr. There, there, there's, there's, I can do that. If you hadn't been there, I'd, that would have been different. If you hadn't been there, it would have been a completely different show. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you, yeah. Did, uh, <laughs> you did make uh, some, some jokes involving me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, uh, I guess there are a lot of standups who will say, Oh, don't blame the crowd if a show doesn't go well, but there is some truth to the energy you're getting from the crowd and how the Uh, show goes. I mean, not necessarily if you do a bad job, that's on you, but, 
Uh, yeah, you can't blame the I, crowd I think for that. The, I think the crowd is the crowd is part of it because it's a dialogue, right? It's a back and forth on that. Mm-hmm. I don't ever. I, I I also don't believe in blame the crowd when like I'll I'll do that when I'm coaching a team and it's like all right the crowd wasn't into it or they didn't like it and then afterwards like yeah it, it, when we go into notes though afterwards I never want to hear the the team blame the crowd for right. their work. Right. Yeah, they just yeah. weren't into it tonight. You know, like I think if you know if they'd been more into it, our stuff would have worked. I'm like, if they they would have been more into it, if your stuff had worked, right? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, right. I also do. I also believe that there's a. I'm a big Henry Rollins fan. I got three tattoos. Two of them are Rollins related. <laughs> uh, but he in his book Get in the Van, uh, it's about it's it's a it's his diary that he kept during the days when he was uh, touring with Black Flag. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a passage in there which i have sent to many an improv team that i have coached where he talks about they were i think they were in like tucson or something like that somewhere in arizona and he was outside in the parking lot like all bummed out because there weren't as many people there uh as there had been last year when they came to that show and then chuck dukowski who's the bass player one of the founders of the band uh came outside and like was like what's your problem and he said it and dukowski just lit into him he was like, fuck you, man. He's like, it's not, he's like, I don't care if we're playing to five people or 500. It's the people that showed up. It's not their fault right. that more people didn't show up, right. right? Whether it's five people or 500, you go out there and you play your fucking ass off because they came. Exactly. I have done many, I've seen improvisers and some of my heroes and some of my heroes as I've done shows with them on stage. It's all like, there's only four people here. And I'm like, well, I'm going to blow those fucking four people's minds. I'm going to give them the best possible show that I can because it's not their fault that other people didn't show up. Whether it's marketing or promotion or it's fucking raining out, I don't care if it's an act of God, I'm going to blow those four people's mind because those four are going to go out into the world and are going to speak hosannas about how great that show was. Dude, you should have been there. I couldn't believe how amazing it was. And it was like just for me. It was like me and three other guys. Like, I will do that. I've yeah. done crazy good shows. I've done crazy good shows for the fucking cocktail server and the light booth guy. Right. End of list. Right? <laughs> I do not. I will crush it for them. That's an old Gene Simmons quote as well. Gene Simmons from Kiss. He was like, he was like, uh, you know how many people were at the first Kiss show ever? Five. Four waitresses and a bartender. You know how many people have told me over the years that they were at that first show? Two hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's, that's I think that's you a good go discussion out there and to have. yourself. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's a really good discussion to have to say we are going to go do our best show because what you do is on, like I said earlier, is on you, really. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I understand wanting to have a big, fun crowd, but right. if you're doing, I mean, no one says, you know, on a basketball team or a football team, if no one's in the crowd, they still have to run the plays correctly. And no yeah, one they still have to play the team. game. <laughs> right. And no one on the team, if they lost the game because they didn't run the plays correctly, no one says because the crowd wasn't into it or there wasn't any crowd right. there. You still have plays mm-hmm. to run. You still have things that you're supposed to do a particular way, mm-hmm. whether you're doing improv or stand-up or, or uh, you're a musician. The paycheck's the same. <laughs> you gotta yeah. go out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're getting you're you're getting paid. Obviously, improv. None of us get paid, or most of us don't get paid to do it. But you you still got that stage time. You still given that opportunity. Right. You want to piss away? If nothing else, be selfish about it. Do you want to piss away this stage time opportunity and not give it your best so you can uh, delay by one show getting better, becoming <laughs> right. uh, finding yeah finding a moment where you're gonna like <clears throat> just have like 
the explosion go off. I'm the same way when I watch quote unquote bad improv. I watch way more quote unquote bad improv than I ever do good improv on purpose mm-hmm. because of an old quote, old quote, uh, Jimmy Hendrix got busted once, uh, in a small London bar watching this, like basically just a, a bar band, like a cover band. Uh-huh. And so like, and he was like, he was in the back and he was trying to like, just lay low and someone recognized him. And they're like, Holy shit. And he, he talked about this in an interview. Someone was like, Holy shit, you're Jimi Hendrix. What the fuck are you doing here watching this band? He's like, well, you never know, man, that, that guitar player might have a moment of genius. He might, uh, you know, it could just be 30 seconds. It could be five seconds. Maybe he stumbles upon a lick or maybe he makes a mistake, a mistake. And then he tries to, to play that mistake twice to turn it into something, and that might inspire me to write a song. Uh, so it's it's still all creativity, man. It's beautiful, and I just remember reading that, going. And I, I, I think I read that quote when I was like a year or two into improv. It was an interview I'd never seen before with Hendrix, and I was just like, man, you know, if it's good enough for Hendrix, right? Who the fuck am I? Who am yeah. I? So like, people are like, hey, you go, like, hey, you were at my. You're at like my level five B grad show. Like, why? <laughs> and I try and I do. I do the same thing. I try to like hide in the back, and so they like don't see me because I don't want. I don't want a student to be like, "Ooh, BOC's here. He was my teacher." And I, I don't want to put them in their head or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do kind of want to watch the light bulb go off. I'd much rather watch someone who's been doing it for six months and have a really clunky, awful like not not awful, but like. Cause I don't believe in good or bad improv. I don't believe in good or bad improv uh, improvisers. All right. Uh, but they might have a clunky and it's not really clicking isn't it? and they're kind of stepping over each other. It's just, it's just kind of a little cluster fucky, but I will watch that second beat where that one person does a walk on and then walks back off again. And it's brilliant and they don't know it. But at the end when, you know, or like it's brilliant, it works, and then I see them walk off stage in the in the wings, and they're like, "Oh my god, that worked!" Like having that look, I would much rather watch that than watch um, people that have been doing it for twenty five, thirty years because it's it's brilliant and it's great and it's beautiful. But like, a it doesn't like a like I know why it's good. I can see the technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also like, you know, because, but they're also comfortable and relaxed because they've been doing it for 25 years. Right. Uh, but also, uh, especially for young improvisers, don't watch that stuff because it's discouraging. <laughs> you like, you watch, you like, I'll never be able to be as good as that. And like, right. yeah, you're, you're watching 12 seconds, but you're not watching 12 seconds. You're watching 25 years distilled into 25 into 12 seconds. <laughs> they weren't always that good. Like, right. like, go and see, like, if you're, if you're in level one of the place, go see the grad shows, go see the stuff that is attainable, the stuff that's going to be you in a year or less. All right. Yeah, you that's only a go see idea. ask. Yeah. Yeah. If you only go see ask Cat and Armando and quartet and Heather and miles, if you only go see these people that are like just great or bass prov, they're just crazy good. It will become disheartening because you'll feel like I'll never get there. Right. Right. Try and just walk across the room. Don't try and yeah. Don't try and walk across the room first. Don't try and walk to France. Right. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. To go back to the thing about performing in Mm -hmm. front of a small crowd, but still giving it your all. How do you get Mm -hmm. into the mindset? Because it can be if you're backstage and then you look out and see there's not that many people. It can for for many be discouraging and make them not really 
get the guts maybe to give it their all? How do you get out of your head or or prepare yourself to still fully, fully get vulnerable and, and put your all into a show? Uh, well, for me, I always say, uh, for me personally, I have the philosophy that you're only really playing for two or three people in the audience anyway. If whether whether it's a packed standing room only house or anything, what you re- the moments that are really connection is the is not when everyone laughs, not when it's this big guffaw. It's where it's just one guy in the back who's like, <laughs> that's the guy that got your reference, right? That's the guy that has a cousin who's just like who's who acts the way that you act, right? Uh-huh. Uh, that sort of that sort of moment of revelation, that aha moment. Or on the flip side of that, if you're being super vulnerable, if you're being really um, raw and naked with your emotions. Uh, they're, the law of average estates, and it goes back to the thing I said, you know, you know improv saved my life, right? Uh, you know, I, I spent, you know, I spent a decade of my life thinking about killing myself, like, every day. The best acting you ever saw me do in my life was probably one of those days where I was acting like I didn't want to kill myself. So there's the law of average estates that there's at least one person in the crowd who's thinking about hurting themselves. And if you can buy them one more day with your comedy, that's who you're playing for. So if there are only three or four people in the crowd and you have a seven person team, pick one person in the crowd, pick that one person that you're trying to make their day. And maybe, you know, hopefully that's a person who needed that that day. You never know. People come, you know, people that you don't know what people's journey was that day. Maybe they got a parking ticket that morning. Maybe they, they woke up and realized that the person that's sleeping next to them doesn't love them anymore. You have no idea. So play for that one person. Play, wow. play for that one person. Try to get, try to get that one. I don't want a standing ovation from a hundred people. I want a standing ovation from one person in a hundred people. That person who's just like, this spoke to me and it means so much to me that I don't care that there's a hundred other people here and they're not standing up. I'm standing up. Thank you for that. Right? That's who I'm playing for. That's yeah, how I, I mean, I think we all can relate to times where we needed entertainment or art to, mm-hmm bring us through the day get us through the day i've no i've had depressions where watching conan and jimmy fallon is what made me happy that day <laughs> it was mm-hmm. maybe the only thing that made me happy that day and that that kept me going uh I, yeah. that's pretty heavy to to think about that how do you because mm-hmm. the same is happening if you're coaching one of those players might be in that same place and you're trying mm-hmm. to maybe challenge them to uh, push themselves or move forward as people and as improvisers so how do you approach it mm-hmm. in that kind of setting I, I let them play through it i just had this i had something similar to this actually just uh, happened the other day i don't stop and discuss it all that if i can see that they're struggling and and, and are frustrated <clears throat> and even breaking breaking the fourth wall and just turning and looking at me like okay because i do some side coaching here and there uh, most of my side coaching is firm encouragement you've got this you can do this right uh-huh. <laughs> i don't uh, it's positive, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be firm about it. Um, I'll, I'll let them play through it. I'll let them, I'll let them use that frustration to inform their character, uh, to use it. If you're, if you're feeling your thoughts and feelings are valid, if you're thinking it, you're allowed to say it. If you're feeling it, you're allowed to be affected by it. I don't stop it or, or cut the scene and talk about it <clears throat> unless, unless there's a moment where like I've had people on the verge of tears or cry and I just keep going with the rehearsal. I keep letting them know that it's okay to feel that way and to use it in the next scene to like, because if, if we stop 
And then we're all now turning and looking at the person who's on the edge of tears and already feeling bad about themselves. I, I, I personally, I won't speak for anyone else, but I personally don't think that's positive. Right. That if everyone, if you, if you're someone, especially if someone who's dealt with depression like I have, you already think that the whole world is watching you and hates you. Right. So the one thing I don't want to do is stop. Make a room full of people stare at. Them. Yeah. Yeah. But if the, I will say this though, if uh, I have had times where people have that breakthrough and get emotional, they're kind of like, I just don't know what's happening today. I have nothing to say, and I feel just empty. Uh, since everyone has already stopped. I'll let them say that. And I'll say, thank you so much for sharing that. And like, get ready. Cause here it comes. And then we just big group hug. Everyone just comes in and just hugs. And as long, as long as it takes, whether we stand there for 15 seconds and then the person's like, all right, I'm fine. Get off me get off me. You know, that kind of thing. Or if we just have to stand there for five minutes, just give that, that's the energy in the room. That's the truth in the room. Um, I'd much rather keep the rehearsal going and let that person discover how to use that emotional truth in that moment. Cause that's as raw as they're probably ever going to be. So that'll be less scary when they're on stage, not that raw, like 10% of that type of raw. And it'll be, it'll be confidence building for them. Cause it's like, look, look, rehearsal two weeks ago, you were, you were a blubbering mess and you still played a penguin. <laughs> who happened to be a blubbering mess, right? <laughs> tonight, think of how great that show was. Think of how great that cowboy character you played tonight when you were just kind of like annoyed. Right. You know, because that's, that, the stakes weren't as high, so it's, it was easier or more comfortable for you to put that on. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that's just personally how I approach it. Every, mm-hmm. every teacher has their own way of doing it, and if it works, it works. Right? That's just the way I do it. Great. I'm... Well, I'm wondering how you deal with people's frustration, maybe not from a emotional or mental standpoint, but just from a frustration of trying to perform and feeling like they're not getting what you're saying and don't understand it and they're getting more and more frustrated. How do you help mm-hmm. them get what you're saying and move forward with, in those sort of situations? Um, I, I remind them uh, that it is something I got from Eric Honeycutt and I really enjoy it. Uh, Eric Honeycutt is a teacher over at iOS. He teaches for Steppenwolf West. I think he's genius. I think he's one of the best improv teachers on the planet. I think he's one of the best we got. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's an honor to call him a friend and, and, a, and it means a lot to me that he uh, respects me and considers me a peer. Uh, but one thing he said to me very early on and I'm like totally in, he's like, there are no consequences on the stage, only revelations. And you don't have the right to use this art form to make yourself feel bad about yourself. So I start with that as a reminder right off the bat and then remind them too that like it's a process. It takes time. It's improv is like golf or pool. You can play it until you're 80 and still learn new things and still be frustrated. So if you're frustrated at 23, boy, you better get used to that frustration (laughs) being part of the process and failure being good because you got another 60 years of this, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's, Choose now how you want to process that. And I just, I, I let them know that like, these are just reps. These are swinging a bat and that, uh, rehearsals and workshops and practice is when you're supposed to fail is when you're supposed to try things. Yeah. Like you, if I have, if I have a rehearsal and all my teammates were laughing and all of my stuff hit and I was the funniest guy in the room, I am fucking livid for weeks <laughs> because that means I didn't try anything. That means I didn't, try, I'd never stepped out of my comfort zone. I just did stuff that was, I didn't do anything that was scary. Right. That means I, I, I wasted an opportunity to get better. So usually when I say that, it's pretty hard for the student or the team member to like 
come back because if I'm saying that I would be livid if this wasn't happening to me, then they kind of they kind of have to just take it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Like, that's that's a burger. Yeah, you know, a lot of people do sort of hold back in practices, and that really is the place where you gotta go for it and be willing to just eat crap. Yeah, it's the best. It's the you're never gonna get a better audience than your teammates. If if you're not going to go vulnerable in front of your teammates, who are you going to go vulnerable in front oh, of? Yeah, you're certainly not going to do it in front of strangers <laughs> on show. Yeah, night. yeah, and and I understand that there are certain there are certain folks. I get that where people are like, oh, I could never have this conversation with my mom, but I can do it with a stranger in front of a hundred other strangers. And I get I get that because mm-hmm. I was a musician, and uh, when I when I first started. It's it's easier to have a big crowd because it becomes sort of a wave, it becomes sort of faceless. But if you're, and so you can sort of just project over their heads and be that way. Versus if there's five people in the crowd and still being that emotionally involved because it's intimate and you can see the faces and you can see their eyes and you can see how they're reacting to it. So like I, I understand that that's difficult for folks, but at the same time, like if you're in a practice and these are all like your friends and your teammates and people that you hang out with and get burgers with and go bowling and have movie nights. If you're not going to try and be vulnerable in front of them who are going to keep your secrets, who are not going to talk about it outside of that room. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, as soon as the, the second the practice is over, if the subject has dropped, they'll let you talk about it if you want to talk about it. Cause otherwise they're not going to, right. uh, if you're not, yeah, if you're not going to do it there, then I don't, uh, when will you ever do it? And that's, and that's an important part of this, this art form. You can't, you can't be a good improviser and a shitty friend and you can't be, you can't be a successful improviser if, if you're never willing to, what, what's a uh, Jill Bernard said this. And I thought it was great. Uh, Jill Bernard, another amazing genius improv yeah. teacher. Um, she, she, uh, when I, I, her one person show drum machine that she's been doing forever and ever. Yeah. She did it one of the, <clears throat> yeah. It's one of the early, early inspirations for me to do, three insane rituals and what I take I take a little bit from her I take a little bit from Valancourt and a little bit from some other folks who I've seen do one person shows but the number one thing I took from Jill is the one that she said was like I'm going out there and trying to break my own heart and yeah you know, like so like if, if you if you're not willing to try and go out on stage and break your own heart you're you're pretty much just assigning yourself to a plateau of improv that you'll never get past yeah yeah, Jill Bernard is a fantastic improviser and a fantastic person. Oh yeah, uh, love that woman to death. Every time we see each other, it's like ah. Yeah, uh, but we're also probably as far away from each other on the improv spectrum <laughs> as humanly possible. I, we we can play together greatly, and I, all the stuff that she teaches, I'm like absolutely that works and it's great, and wonderful. Uh, but like I'm at the I'm on the other. She's like, everything is a gift. And that's the wonderful thing about improv is that everything's a gift and everything. I'm like, yeah, but at the same time, like you can drive a car with your feet. It doesn't make it a good idea. (laughs) Doesn't make it, doesn't make it. I think, I think, and I think that's for me personally, just because I am miles junior in the way you listen, but I have my own things too. Like, uh, that I've evolved from Miles, and I believe in stuff that he doesn't believe. He believes one person shows are masturbatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, I, yeah. I don't think I don't think he would have any interest, desire, or maybe even even any respect for the three insane rituals. The thing I do, I know he's never seen it. Right. Right. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm about to upload the video from the one I did on Tuesday. <clears throat> I might send it to him because I know he'll watch it. He may rip me apart for it. I don't know. 
But I love the idea of efficiency. I love the idea of clarity. Right. Speed and clarity are the two things I really love. The, uh, being able to just turn like one, like if I could have, if I could find a way to say one word and have it have seven meanings, I'd be super happy. That's why I love the uh, the two the two wild and crazy guys from SNL. I fucking love that sketch for how yeah. efficient it is. It's the name of the sketch. It's the name of the characters, and it's the mantra, the thing that they say. Yeah, it doesn't get. Two, we are two wild and crazy guys. And just from saying that, you see it, you imagine it, you know the era that it was in, in the 70s, and what it oh, yeah. meant to be in that era, all the history of SNL, everything that, that that has happened to Aykroyd and Steve Martin since then, it's just all there, just from saying that one phrase. I love yeah. shit like that. I'm yeah. dying to try and improvise something like that. When it comes Whereas to... I, 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 yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. Uh, when it comes to your approach to improv and and how you perform, what is it your what are your philosophies or or your standards for strong improv? Uh, for me, uh, I think again it goes back to that statement because uh, I haven't thought of a better, more clear, more efficient way of doing it. Our job as improvisers to uh, replicate recognizable human behavior and present it on the stage in such a way that the audience. Uh, discovers their own humanity, reveals that revelation through the form of laughter, so we can have a longer discussion and deeper transaction of ideas on how to heal the world. You know, too long didn't read version, be interesting. You are interesting. Be you. So I think I'm constantly going out there just trying to be as much me as possible, to be as... As I can play a character and I can have all kinds of different affectations and a weird physicality and a voice inflection and I got my and got my a facial expression it's all junked up and I can play the point of view of that character but they all come from me right, right. I'm going to play if I'm going to play a guy uh, like for example because I really like the dark stuff that's that's where my head goes on that I'm going to play a guy with down syndrome not as a joke not as punching down I'm going to try and play I mean my my, my nephew is autistic so uh, it's certainly in the, and I love him. He's great. He's gonna. It's gonna be a, that kid's gonna be a genius. He's mm-hmm. gonna. He's gonna figure out something that's gonna like turn sand into water, and we're just gonna be great. Right? <laughs> he's that kind of. He's kind of that level, right? right. Um, but I'm gonna play a believable, recognizable, realistic person with Down syndrome, and then so everyone goes, "What? What? What?" Okay, well, he's not he's not doing the quote-unquote retarded bit. Great, okay. Oh, that's so sweet, right? Like, oh, that's right. nice. Like, oh, great, I have a, like, oh, I have a cousin with autism. I'm going to do that. And you know what I'm going to do after that? I'm going to make that guy a dick. <laughs> I'm going to make that kid with autism an asshole, right? And mm-hmm. force you. And force you to, like, well, how, how far is it? Because to me, and my, my father's disabled. My dad's walked on straight on crutches since he, since 1978. I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any memories of my father that aren't with him, you know, walking on the crutches. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so I sort of know firsthand that the last thing that disabled people want to be treated as is different. Right. You no, know, they don't see it. They don't see it as a disability. They see it as, you know, just a sort of a fact of their life. Right. Uh, one of the, one of the funniest people on the planet I know is Shannon DeVito out of Philadelphia. That, Mm -hmm. that chick is amazingly funny and she uses, you know, she uses her disability as part of her act. But like, that's not what I think of when I think of Shannon first. I think of how funny she is. I think of what a humongous Cubs fan she is. And we talk about it back and forth. Mm -hmm. I think about how she looks exactly like my friend Eileen O'Connell. And I have this idea of making them sisters in this basketball pilot that I have, because I think they would be hilarious bouncing off of each other. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, I don't want to treat them as different, but I do want to go dark. 
So I'm like, yeah, do you, uh, like, do you hate this kid? I'm not saying that I hate kids with autism because I'm playing a stereotypical offensive autistic person. I'm going to play a realistic autistic person, and I want to make you hate them because they're an asshole. <laughs> right? I want to play that. That's, that's true that's equality. My philosophy. Yeah. That'll be true yeah, equality I wanna, then. Yeah, I want to hold up a mirror. The, the old man, many, 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 many years ago, he said, our job is to hold up a mirror to the audience, and if they don't like what they see, that's on them, not us. Uh, true. I just, that, yeah, and that stuck with me. I was just like, all right. Right. Are you? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you uncomfortable? Do you not like this? I'm just. I'm holding. I'm miming holding a mirror right now to the audience and leaning over them, yeah. leaning over the person in the front row. Right like, oh, are you uncomfortable? Do you not like the feelings that you have? You hate this guy, don't you? But you don't want to say you hate him because he's autistic, and then you feel like people are going to judge you, and you don't want to be playing, uh, just <laughs> just forcing forcing that. Uh, I've had people come up to me after shows, furious serious with me as if I was actually that person and not just playing a character. You know, they're not, you know, right. like they're mad at that person. I just want to let you know that my sister dated a guy. They're like, and they're just telling me the story. I'm like, I was, that's not me. I'm playing a character. <laughs> yeah. That's if, if I was actually like that, you would never see that on stage because I would hide it from you because that's what villains do. Right. Villains don't try and villains don't try and convince you that they're villains. They try and convince you that they're great guys because they're villains. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's how I do it. So when, for somebody who is, uh, getting along in their improv career, how do sure. they, what is the process they can take to try to open up to, to be that real on stage. Is there a process that you take? Um, just all I, the years to, of, of training. Some of it is reps. Some of it is just everyone's wired differently. If you find something that works for you, do that. Some people like to take, you know, it's just like in all of acting. I mean, you take something like, you know, um, you know, like 10 little Indians, you know, uh, or uh, murder on the Orient express that, that movie, you've got like a dozen different people in that movie. Uh, you know, Sean Connery and Albert Finney yeah. and all these different ones, they all have massively different approaches to the work. Right. Some people like, uh, you know, some people are like Mel Gibson who can just like play pranks on the, on the grips and kind of joke around right until the camera says action. And then he can turn to the camera and he can fucking cry and yeah. he can get to that moment I've like that, that. And then they call cut. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, his problems aside, I've always been a huge fan of Mel. Uh, yeah, he's a great the, actor. And that's the thing. Someone can actor, have problems director, yeah. and be a good director and a good actor. I mean, that's one of the things yeah. that Hamilton taught us, right? That that musical right. taught us that someone can be terrible and mm-hmm. have written something great. Like there were, you know, there's certain... There was someone who was talking about one of uh, one of the actors and it was talking about Jefferson. Who yeah. Said, yeah. You know, he can suck, but then he can also have written some great things that help yeah. our country. Uh, both yeah, can so be true. Just, but there's, but there, yeah, both of those things can be true. And then some people, I think it's just reps. And when you're ready, you're ready. You know, that's, you can, you can, if, if you want to be more vulnerable on stage, if you're actively thinking about that in your improv life and going like, I want to be more vulnerable on stage, then you're going to, then you're going to seek out ways that will help you do that. Right. You're going right. to find, you're going to stumble upon the way. If you're like, nah, I'm just going out there to be funny. Well then, then you don't have that urge. You don't have that desire. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. That's just, again, there's nothing wrong with people. I, I have no plenty of improvisers who go like, Hey, look, man, I'm just going to, I'm not going out there to try and like, you know, change the world. I'm just going out there trying to be funny. That's great. That's, that is what you want out of it. And that is what you're going to get. Right. You I do you and I'll do I, me. That's, uh, you know, yeah. there needs to be some 
equal acceptance of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think what happens usually is that usually people, usually an improviser will stumble upon that on stage, and and they have that great moment, and then of a, a vulnerability where they're like actually feeling those emotions, and the audience is dead quiet because they're into it. I mean, like they are wrapped with attention, and then that happens, and then they walk off stage after that scene for sure, definitely after the show where they have time to process it and they spend the rest of their time chasing that dragon. And then that's, they will, they will find whatever way works for them to get them to that, that sort of emotional vulnerability every time, each time out the gate. I had that and my, my moment was in Phoenix. Oh fuck. Probably like seven, eight years ago, maybe more. Uh, me and me and miles did our two person show in Phoenix. And, uh, I got to the point where I was, I was crying real tears on stage and, uh, and I, and I looked over and miles looked at me and he had that, he had this small, very, very subtle, very small moment. I think only I, because I was on stage with him, but also because how well I know him, uh, caught it. But then it was just, it was just a brief moment glimpse. And then we kept moving on. And then afterwards he was like, yeah, I, I looked over you and saw that you were crying real tears. And I went, Oh, Oh, I'm I'm not as committed as O'Connell is. I need I need to up my fucking game. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I got to bring my A game. Uh, and I remember that moment, and then how how that was his way of saying that he was proud of me. Uh, and I was like, I was like that for me. That that's the moment. I'm I'm chasing that sort of moment all the time. I want to I want to feel that again all the yeah. time. Where I wasn't I wasn't trying to do it. It just happened. And then to see my mentor and one of my best friends on the planet have that brief moment of like, Oh, he's going, he's no one thinks about improv more than the old man. No one, he's the greatest improv teacher on the planet living easily hands down. And to have that brief moment where he was like, this man is committed more to this art form than I am right now. Is, <laughs> that, that meant the world to me. So that's, that's a really great story. Well, well there's plenty we can talk about. I'd probably have to have another oh, sure. episode with you, but uh, we're uh, at the great, end yeah, of this I, one. I fucking talk a lot. <laughs> uh, that's no, I love it. Uh, that's what I love about this podcast. I would I like to try to come up with something, maybe a, a process that people can take on how they can learn to find their standards and how they can find their own way to dig in and move forward in their in their journey as an improviser. Does that sound like a good Ooh, idea? That's- that's a very good idea. I think I may actually already have an answer for that. Yeah, I kind of do too. Uh, One thing that I did when I was in like junior high or something like that, I said, I'm in mm-hmm. Spartanburg, South Carolina. I'm not going to be able to uh, study with uh, in, in a great theater like Juilliard or something. So my mm-hmm. thing, and this is similar to what I heard you were talking about doing at I.O., was I just watched things a lot. I would watch movies and TV shows oh, yeah. and study their process and hear them mm-hmm. in interviews talk about their process. That's one yeah. thing I suggest people do all the time is to watch things, not merely for entertainment, but also to learn how people do it. Like, what's that pace? What's that, what's that rhythm? So that's one thing mm-hmm. I would throw out there. For sure. I like, um, I, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I encourage uh, improvisers to watch um, child, uh, like family-friendly movies starring animals. Like the the straight to video the the puppy that saved Christmas the puppy saved because there's also the puppy that saved Halloween the puppy that saved Easter the puppy uh, 
Airbud, soccer dog, most <laughs> valuable primate, monster dog, right? Um, any of those. Not, not like there's one where it's a girl and a chihuahua have to enter into a dance contest oh to save the to save like a beauty parlor. I shit you not, <laughs> because those movies. You talk about anything like yeah, you can laugh at them ironically if you want to, but really the reason why uh, was it uh, oh Russell Russell Mania, the one where it's a Jack Russell Terrier who's oh a wrestler, right? Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, you have to watch those because you can set your watch to those. You'll see how there is a pattern through each one of those shows, uh, each one of those movies that they are following all basically the same script. And once you realize that, that since they're all following that same, I think there's like fucking seven Air Buds. Right. Once you uh, notice that they're all following that same script and they still work and it's still useful, then you go like you are also allowed to use that type of pattern because people in your improv, because people respond to it. It's not safe. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It works. Right. You have to discover why it works. And then and then me, of course, because I go to the dark stuff. Once you've watched that and realize that you've watched, uh, you know, the puppy that saved Christmas, you know, the puppy that saved fill in the blank. You watch all those movies. Then you have to realize that that's not the same puppy, right? Because puppies don't stay that size very long, right? And then one more step after that, where he gets really into BOC land, that first puppy is dead now <laughs> because dogs don't live that long, right? right? And that dog is dead now. <laughs> you you are watching and clapping and making fun of a dead dog. <laughs> How do you feel about yourself now? <laughs> uh, but but maybe if you don't want to do that, uh, I always sort of, uh, I always tell people new into improv, uh, especially for like a question like that, go to your bookshelf and pick three books at random. They're, they're books that you bought, books that you kept, that mean something to you. Flip through them, see things that like sort of, if you want to underline them or if you want to dog ear it or put in, and then after you've done that, just take a second and think of like, you know what, they all probably have some sort of common commonality. Mm-hmm. The first commonality is that they're your books. You bought them. You're the own. You own them. Someone gave them to you because they thought that you would like it. Right? It all. It all comes from you. There's probably more in that book, improv training and improv history for you than any of the actual improv training and technique and workshops you've done. Especially because those books were around. They were part of you probably before you knew what improv was. Yeah, that's what I do. I, I, there's certain books that I read every year because they're, they're the best books about improv, written about improv that are not about improv. The In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch, uh, yeah. the Jiao of uh, the the Tao of uh, Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee, the uh, the uh, the Bushido Code, the Warrior's Way of the Samurai. I, I, I read that. I read the Bushido Code probably four times a year because I think it's the most it's the most well written book about improv that's not about improv. Wow, wow. Yeah. Those are some good reads. Sound, that's, they sound like really yeah. good reads. One thing I like to yeah. do that's, uh, and it's total happenstance. There are just times if I'm at the gym and I'm working out and the TV's on or somewhere, I might see a movie or TV show, but I can't hear it, mm-hmm. but I'm still watching it. Right. And you can kind of, oh, you can yeah. still pick up on what's happening <clears throat> just because they're acting with their body. Good actors act with their uh-huh. body, their whole body. So not just their face. Yeah. But they are. You see from the way they're moving around. You're you're seeing what the story is, and you're not hearing any of the dialogue. You're not. There's some. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, there's not a, a closed caption to read. But you're still picking yep. up on. Oh, he's breaking up on her. 
hundred percent, and and very good direction, right? Because of the shot selection and the editing. Yeah. Uh, very early on, like many many years ago, I got, I got the pleasure of meeting Bill Duke, who was in Predator, and I'm a huge John McTiernan fan. So I was like, I'm gonna pick your fucking brain. He was like John McTiernan. He was like, it's genius. John McTiernan is a cinematic. That man he is did a master of cinematic. Yep, and he did Predator. He was like, John McTiernan is the master. He's a master of cinematic language. He was like, do this. Go home. Watch Predator. I was like, I've watched Predator a thousand times. I know that He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch Predator with the sound off. He was like, you still understand 85% of that movie. You don't hear the dialogue, you know what I'm saying? But, and I did. And he's a fucking 100% right. People look at each other. Yeah. You know exactly how they feel about each other. The close-ups, the choices that they make. You watch Bill Duke hate Carl Weathers until the moment where they have to set it aside to kill this fucking alien. You can't, their lips are moving, you can't hear it, but just the eyes, uh, the expression on their face, and the way that McTiernan shot it and lit it, you can, you can know, you know exactly what's happening. Yeah. The, the first time that Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger meet, where they do the fucking, uh, the, the hand, the handshake, and the handshake with a death grip, and they're just seeing the who like who gives first and all that. It tells you right up top in that moment, Carl Weathers is going to betray that guy because he's yeah. weak, right? <laughs> like it's it's brilliant. You watch you, you watch Predator without the sound on, uh, with the sound off, and you're just like, holy shit, it's amazing. It's easy to do that, which is also a good way for improvisers to remind uh, to remind themselves that uh, improv doesn't improv scene doesn't start when people start talking. Right. There's no law that says an improv scene has to be uh, has to have dialogue to be successful. It really doesn't. Sounds like a good <laughs> stopping point. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. And yeah, if we uh, if we need to do another one of these again in the future to to cover all the stuff because I'm sure you and I could talk for another three hours about. I'd this. love to. Feel free, man. I think we all know that I'm definitely going to be having him on again, and would. Truly love to have him on again. I am, uh, I'm really thankful he did that. He was great and he had a lot of good stuff. He's really tapping into something unique because he's able to just watch all these great people and study what they're doing and, and learning under all these great people for the last 13 years. Now he is teaching all these great people and doing all these amazing things. I mentioned he's at IO. He's also at the Pack Theater. So check out both. Packtheater.com IOimprov.com You can see his shows for sure but you can see some others as well. And check out a group he's a part of Dr. God Comedy. You can check out their website drgodcomedy.com that's one of those things we'll definitely have to talk about next time I have them on follow everyone on twitter at b3oc and at there it is pod and at jason far jokes follow us all go to there it is pod.com to find out how you can support the podcast and deal with your there-itis there-itis it's the desire for more episodes of there it is the only medication is more there it is also, check out old episodes and blogs on the website. Well, there it is, another episode of There It Is. Next week's episode will be another fun and informative one, so do come back and check it out. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.